guys are far too sweet. Uh, it's good to be here. It's been, I think it was Reformation Conference when I was here last time, so it's been a little bit, but uh, greetings to you from, again, dear friends of yours at Providence Reformed Church. We love First Baptist Church of the Lakes. We happily send people this direction, so um, it's good to have another faithful church in the valley that we can be comfortable just fellowshipping with and knowing we have faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So how are you guys tonight? You okay? Good. Couple, one quick question for you. Are any of you note-taking types? Okay, good. That'll help me. It'll make me feel better if somebody is. So well, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we seek your blessing on our study of your word. I believe that there is real, rich, soul help in your word tonight. I pray that we'll find it. I pray that you'll show it to us. I pray that you will be magnified. And that I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. St. Augustine once said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. No matter how many years go by since Augustine's time in the 5th century, that statement remains true. We advance technologically, scientifically, at rates which seem unimaginable, but we cannot eliminate suffering. C.S. Lewis said, The real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. Lewis said on a false belief, many people hold it. Many people believe that if they could just be right with God, if, if they could just be good enough, they wouldn't suffer in this life. But personal experience, more importantly, Scripture, will tell us that suffering is a component that's bound to our human existence. Suffering is not eliminated just because you're forgiven by God. In fact, following Christ often leads to even greater suffering as a lost world attacks. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, since we're a Wednesday night, I feel a little less formal. How many of you would say you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? How many of you expect persecution? Yeah. Paul understood that to know Christ is to know suffering. There's no reprieve from pain just because your sins have been forgiven. And in Psalm 22, David writes to us about suffering, real suffering. He's writing about the kind of darkness where life is crashing down around you in every way. And when God seems not to be helping, David's hurting, confused, in pain. You ever been through a time like that? You ever feared for your life? You ever feared for your own sanity? You ever thought you would do just about anything you could if it would make the pain stop? What do you do in times like that? How do we handle it? How do we pray? The psalm that Ed read for us is magnificent. And in that psalm, David finds hope in the darkness. 
And there's a pattern in how David responds to God. And if we find that pattern, we're going to find that that pattern is helpful for us today just as much as it was for David 3,000 years ago. Now, before we begin, I want to ask you to do a favor for me. And it's a weird one. You're eager, aren't you? Would you be willing to try to read this psalm the first time through with very little by way of your New Testament eyes. This is one of the clearest portions of all of Scripture that point us to Jesus at the cross at Calvary, but I'm asking you tonight, would you read it through with me from the mindset of David? We will, I promise you, get to the New Testament predictions that are here, but let's first learn how to find hope in the darkness. And here's how we're going to do it. This is for my note-takey folks. I'm going to give you three main sections, and each of the three main sections is going to have a, a point or two or three or four in it. And they're going to show us ways of how to respond when we feel pain, suffering, darkness, and hopelessness. With me so far? One more question for you guys. You can talk to me a little bit. How many of you guys have gotten into a little training in the world of biblical counseling? I know that's happening here. Any of you guys biblical counseling folks? A little bit? If any of you have any of that in you, this is a glorious biblical counseling model right here. So if that, if that will make your ears perk up, by all means. So the first main section, which is going to be the first 10 or so verses, focus. First section is focus, and the first point inside that section, you make an A if you want to, however you do it. Here's what you do. Admit your need. Admit your need. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. David opens the psalm here with a cry from deep within his heart. And he asks God, why am I forsaken? Notice two things right away in this verse. First, David still calls God, my God. David has not lost his faith. God is still his God, David's God. David just feels the pain, and he expresses that pain to his God. David says he feels forsaken because he prays, but deliverance doesn't come. He prays day and night. But nothing in his life circumstances seemed to be getting better. And for any person, regardless of your number of years as a Christian, for any person to feel like God is not answering your prayers is incredibly painful. To feel like your cries are not heard or are disregarded by the Almighty is for you to feel very, very alone. But notice what David does in this verse. David, David brings his pain to God. David must have some hope in God, otherwise he wouldn't be talking to God. You don't pray prayers to God unless you believe God's there and might be able to do something about it. David believes God cares. When you feel the pain of life crashing down around you, and you will, you need to first do what David does here. You need to cry out to God. I'm not here saying that you get to blame or accuse or dishonor God with how you talk to him. But I'm saying that if you feel the pain, if you feel the darkness, if you feel the despair, 
You've got to express it to God. Admit your need for him. Without doing that, you'll never move on to get help. Now, the B in this section, think biblically about God. Think biblically about God. That's your second point inside this section. The next few verses say, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. One of the greatest temptations when we feel the pain of suffering is for us to raise questions about the character of God. Why are you letting this happen to me? I thought you were supposed to love me. I thought you were supposed to be good. I thought you were supposed to be just. David does not raise that question. David points to two things to declare God's character. He calls God, first, holy. That's exactly how God revealed himself to Israel in the scriptures. Then David points to the faithfulness that God has shown his forefathers in Israel. This is a biblical argument. David knows God not only declared himself to be holy, but he also proved by his actions in protecting Israel, rescuing her from Egypt, bringing her across the Red Sea, feeding her in the desert, defeating the inhabitants of Canaan, that God is faithful and powerful and able to keep his promises. God is holy and faithful. So when we feel the darkness of suffering creeping in, it is crucial that we not allow our minds to be driven by our emotions. Your emotions are real. Your emotions are genuinely a part of you. We're not going to pretend they're not there, but your emotions are untrustworthy and they're often misleading. The fact is God's goodness, God's justice, God's mercy... They're not dependent on our circumstances. God has proved his character time and time and time again. And if we're in pain, if we're in pain, we might forget that God has already done everything God would ever need to do to prove his love for us. He did that in sending Jesus to die for us. God is good. and God is loving even in our darkest of times, it's vital that we remember those facts. So we have to think about God from the Bible more than from our emotions if we're going to be able to handle suffering rightly. Now, the C point inside the focus, the C point. Think humbly about yourself. Think humbly about yourself. 6 to 8 says, But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David follows a right understanding of God's character with a very interesting evaluation of himself. David says he's a worm and not a man. David calls himself as lowly a thing as he can think of. He feels low, and there are other people who are quick to agree with him. His enemies are mocking him. They're making obscene gestures at him. They're taunting him. They're questioning whether God would actually love him. There's sarcasm in their mouths. 
definitely part of this set of verses is David's describing how his enemies are treating him. I think that there's at least a hint here that David knows of his own lowliness. See, when many of us suffer, we demand that God change our circumstances. You ever, you ever want to cry out and, and act like you don't deserve what you're receiving? David doesn't do that. He declares himself a worm, and it's humble before God. Humility is key to proper thinking in suffering. If you think too highly of yourself, you will be outraged at the pain that God lets you feel. You will accuse God of treating you unjustly. But if you ever were to grasp how great is your sin before a holy God, you'll recognize that even your suffering is less severe than you in fact, or I in fact, deserve. We all, we've all been sinners. We all deserve, if left to ourselves, the, for, the full force of the wrath of God against sin. It is a mercy and a blessing from God if we receive anything less than his wrath in hell. I once heard a, a guy, he was, he was honestly a comedian, but he said that one day he decided when people asked him how, thing, how he was going, he said, well, it sure beats hell. And that's really true, isn't it? The D point in our first section, the D. This is the only one with four points, by the way. Declare your commitment to God. Go to 9 and 10. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So this section of the psalm is wrapping us up here, and David returns in his thinking to his relationship with God. My God, my God. David has expressed his pain. He's expressed his trust in the character of God. He's expressed his understanding of his own lowliness. And now David remembers that he has a true commitment to God. David declares he has been in and under God's care from birth. David, the eighth son of a seemingly insignificant shepherd from the tribe of Judah, was elevated by God's sovereign will to become king over all Israel. He clearly had a great faith in God. It was evidenced in his formative years. As a teenager, he told King Saul about how God protected him in the fields, and then he went out by faith in God and slew the giant Goliath. David has trusted in God for as far back as he can remember, and he's not going to stop it now. This point is another key way for you and me to think as we face pain. Now, I would not ever call you to pretend to have faith in God in order to gain relief from suffering. God sees through that. God's not impressed by that. But if you do have a true relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you most certainly should remember that relationship when you suffer. You should remember what a great sacrifice Jesus made in order to be able to welcome you into God's family. You should remember the fellowship, the sweet fellowship with the Spirit of God that your relationship with Christ has brought you. You should remember that declaration of trust in God that you made, even when things around you appear to be falling apart. Remember the promise of eternal life that you received in Christ. 
Don't allow the ugliness of this world to take your focus off of the truth of your relationship with God. Most importantly, remember what your purpose is. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is paramount in every circumstance of your life, even the hard ones. So 10 verses of this psalm so far. We've seen how to prepare, how to focus your mind in order to be ready to survive suffering. You tell God about your pain, but you never forget that God is good and holy. Never forget to have a biblical view of God, regardless of your circumstances. Remember your own humble circumstances, even your lack of worthiness to demand anything of God. But also remember that you, if you know Jesus, are God's child and have certainly got the right to call on God for help in times of trouble. That's how we get started. You with me so far? All right. Here is the second section. The first section was focus. The second section now, pray. Focus, then pray. Now, here's the A. There's two in this section. Point A, under pray, cry out to God for help. And it's going to happen two places in this section. But here, verse 11 says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. You know what's interesting? This is the first request David makes in this psalm. It's a big one. He's expressed that he feels forsaken. He feels abandoned. Now he asks for God to remedy it. He asks God, God, please don't be far from me. And he recognizes he has no hope apart from God. No one else can help him. Danger's right there. David has no one to whom to turn other than God himself. Now, we're going to see the rest of that point in verses 19 to 21 at the end of this section. But for now, recognize that a majorly important step in the process of dealing with suffering is for you to cry out to God and say, God, please help. Once you've got your mind governed by biblical truth and proper theology, you are free to urgently, passionately, honestly cry out to God, asking God, God, please deliver me. Then be in this section describe specifically your needs and fears. Describe specifically your needs and fears. 12 to 13 says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David describes the enemies around him. They're like strong bulls of Bashan. They're, they're well-fed, they're dangerous, they encircle him. They offer no avenue of escape. They open their mouths to devour him. They roar at him like lions, which are the most dangerous predators David would have known of. They roar, they threaten, they insult, they attack. Keep going in verse 14. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David's helpless. His strength is spent. 
He feels like his whole life is poured out like water. His joints ache with weariness. His heart, his courage, it's all melted away. He's in despair. His strength is dried up. It's dried up like a fragment of old dusty pottery. It's brittle. It's fragile. His tongue clings to his mouth. He's thirsty. He's panting. David is physically and emotionally spent. You ever feel like that? Keep going. 16. For dogs encompass me. A, couple of, a, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So now David says, my attackers, they're like dogs. You've got to understand that in those days, dogs were not sweet little pets. They were dirty, nasty, scavenging, mean-spirited, ugly animals. They were like cats today. I just wanted to be in, make sure you're with me. That's good. Thank you. If not cats, think like the coyotes that sometimes people run into around here, right? You don't think of those as a pet. They're dangerous. The dogs are around David waiting to pick his bones clean upon his death. They're biting at his hands and feet, piercing them. He's hungry. He's emaciated. He's thin. He's gaunt. His bones stick out so much that it seems like you could count them. His enemies stare at him, but there's no pity. There's only malice. These evil men are lining up to take away his last earthly possessions. They play a gambling game to see who will get David's personal effects when he dies. I hope you hear when you think through these verses the utter despair, the agony of this suffering man of God. He's hurting. He's in danger. He's without hope. He's surrounded. He's going to die. David doesn't hesitate in this section to spell out his circumstances, his fears, his feelings to God. Notice he's not accusing God of anything. He's just telling God how awful things feel today. He's openly, honestly communicating with God, and then he's going to go back to asking God for help, which was our point A. Look at 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Simply put, David asked God, please be near, please save me. Step in, rescue me from these dangers, these evil men, these bulls, these lions, these dogs. He even asked God, please hurry, hurry because I don't think I can last much longer. If you tie the middle section of the psalm together, you're going to see that to pray during times of suffering involves two things. We openly, honestly, passionately declare to God our need, and we ask Him for help. We don't just complain. Neither do we ask for help in generalities. O oh Lord, build for me a hedge of protection and thy traveling mercies. Amen. We get real. We get honest. We get open with God. You know you can't hide anything you feel from Him, right? 
We don't accuse God of wrongdoing in our circumstances because we've already remembered his character and we remembered our lowliness. But we cry out, oh, please hurry and deliver us from the evil befalling us. You focus, you pray. What comes next? That's the final section. Section three, trust. Focus, pray, trust. Here's the A inside the trust section. Promise God the glory. Look at 22 all the way to 26 here. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Oh, it feels better now. David doesn't merely pray. David actually believes God's going to do something. He trusts God. He doesn't pray expecting his prayers to be ignored. He prays expecting that God will answer his prayers. Thus, he's able to make statements like what you just read. In all of verses 22 through 26, David is promising God glory. We live to give glory and honor to God. David promises God the glory that God is due. He plans to praise God for the answer to his prayer. Everything we see in 22 to 26 is worship. It's the declaration of God's greatness. Maybe it's corporate worship. Maybe it's in the general community around David. Maybe it's in a celebratory meal. You ever have those? I hope you do. You're a church. What we should learn from this is simple. Promise God the glory. It is foolish for you to pray to God asking for God's help or deliverance if you do not also intend to glorify God for the great things God's going to do. We should expect as children of God that God's going to do great marvelous things and we ought also to expect that it is our great joy and responsibility to praise God for those great works. When you pray, when you ask God for help, promise God the glory for doing what you're asking. Now, quick caveat here. I'm not saying that you attempt to buy God off with some little promise of praise for his compliance. You can't benefit God, so don't think you can buy God. But do vow to God the glory due God's name. Expect that God will always work things out rightly. Promise God the praise due him. And most certainly, Keep that promise. Give God thanks. Give God glory for the great things God does. And our B point in this section, trust God for the future. Trust God for the future. Here's the last verses of the psalm. Listen to the trust. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. 
And all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. David's final evidence of hope in or trust in God is his expectation that the knowledge of God's greatness will resound all over the world. David knows that God is king of kings. David knows that no one in the world, no political leader, no religious leader, no power of any sort can stand up to the awesome majesty and sovereignty of Almighty God. God will reign. God is reigning. God will always reign. His glory will be known. His plan will not fail. There is no chance of failure in the plan of God. God will do all that God has planned to do, and no one, nowhere, no how will ever thwart that plan. David finds hope in the sovereign power of God. So should you. When you suffer, remember that he whom you serve is the king of all kings. He's the Lord who rules now and will come and rule all the nations. He's the God who created this world and the God who will ultimately set right all that has ever gone wrong. Take comfort in that God and his great coming glory. And let that comfort get you through the dark periods of suffering. Hard times will come in your life. Hard times will come in mine. The only question we really have is when and for how long. But if we can follow that pattern that we just saw in David, this is how to find hope in the darkness. Cry out to God, declaring your need, declaring your pain. We remember that God is exactly who he claims to be in the Bible, and we let the Bible, not our emotions or our circumstances, direct our understanding of who God is. We remember that we are sinners who do not deserve any favor from God, but we trust in the fact that God has actually made us saints and his children in Christ. We tell God exactly what struggles threaten us, and we ask him, please step in and make a difference. And we trust God. We promise God the glory for what he'll do. And we know he'll do it the right way. He will handle our situation rightly. We know things may not work out in the way exactly that we in our limited wisdom want things to work out. But we will take courage in the confident hope that God is king of kings and his will is going to be done. Let me tell you this, David is not the only one to work through this pattern. I think it's very significant that the Lord Jesus quotes the very first line of this psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me while on the cross? Jesus suffered as is described here. He suffered as grievously as anybody in history 
And in that suffering, Jesus, the Lord, remembered the character of the Father, trusted in his relationship with the Father, cried out for help from the Father, and trusted his Father's provision to the end. If that can bring the Lord comfort on the cross, it can bring us comfort today. Like I said, this psalm's about a lot more than our finding hope in a general time of suffering. This psalm predicts the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring us true eternal salvation. I promised you we'd peek at it. So let's think about Jesus on the cross. What are the similarities between what David wrote and what happened with Jesus a thousand plus years later? Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8, we read them already. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Just listen to Matthew 27, 39 to 44. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified alongside him also reviled him in the same way. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Look down at verse 15 of Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. John 19, 28. Listen to this as you keep your eyes on verse 15. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture. Think about this. This is to fulfill Scripture. Jesus said, I thirst. That's the tongue sticking to the roof of, roof of the mouth, dried up like a pot shirt. Psalm 22, 16 to 18. Dogs encompass me. Company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Listen to Matthew 27, verses 35 and 36. And when they had crucified him, you guys know that's piercing the hands and feet, right? They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. That is soldiers encircling him. Psalm 22, 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 45 and 46 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So much can be said here about the stunning sacrifice of the Savior. Let me simply say that Jesus suffered to pay for the sins of everyone God would ever forgive. And let me declare to you, God commands all people everywhere to repent and come to Jesus for life. Even as we see how to have hope as we suffer, we see that the death of Jesus is our only means of having hope. There's no other way. 
So even on a Wednesday night in a church building in Vegas, I don't know if you know Jesus because I don't know you. So if there's anybody who hears my voice either now or later and you haven't come to Jesus, I urge you, let go of sin and self, trust in Jesus, be saved. And if you have Jesus, praise him and trust him even in times of pain. Would you pray with me, dear friends? Lord God, there's so much for us to gain here. And Lord, I would just ask you here, help us to practice the prayer that we've seen. Help us first, Lord, to focus. Help us to remember who you are and who we are and what the difference is. God, we acknowledge you as holy and faithful. And we acknowledge ourselves as, well, if left to ourselves, a worm, sinners deserving of wrath, only having hope in the grace of Jesus. God, help us to be the kind of people who realize that our emotions themselves are untrustworthy, that our circumstances themselves are untrustworthy, that your word is true. Help us, God, to genuinely, with all of our hearts, just trust you. Help us to pray in times of sorrow, crying out for your deliverance, for your nearness. Help us also to tell you what's wrong. God, free us from the folly of generalized, repetitious, heartless prayer. But instead, help us to be people that open your word and open our hearts and tell you the truth. And Lord, help us to trust. God, here and now, we promise you the praise for the good things you'll do. And here and now, we rest our souls in your care, believing you for mercies and graces. I know, Lord, in this church, there are people that have been deeply hurt and who need real healing. There may be people right now wrestling through deep hardships and struggles. I pray that you would have mercy on them. I pray that you would have mercy and show life. Bring them to joy. Bring them peace. Bring them hope. And since we're talking to you, Lord, I pray for this church's leadership. I pray for the elders. I pray for those who serve in ministry. I pray for the light of the gospel to shine. Like I pray for providence, I pray that this church will be one of the sweetest, most gracious, most biblical churches anybody could ever find. And God, as you grow this church for your glory, we'll give you the glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.